Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. And this week, we have a world-famous and renowned researcher joining us to tell us about a new research study, which uses a fairly new technology and approach to actually track the development of the brain and determine what brain cells go where during development and why. I'm going to let him explain the approach. It uses something called organoids and assembloids. He's going to provide you all the technical guidance and the results. But first, I want to thank Sergio Pasca from Stanford University. If you've heard his name, it's because you might have seen his TED Talk on how to reverse engineer the human brain in the lab. Or you may have heard about or taken his Cold Spring Harbor course on autism spectrum disorders. He may be one of the smartest, most dedicated researchers in autism. Maybe you might have even read his many, many articles about his scientific work, which is dedicated to understanding how the human brain forms from the time of conception throughout the life. Now, he has many awards, honors, and multiple faculty appointments, but the main one is his professor at Stanford and the director of the Stanford Brain Organogenesis Program. It is a huge honor to have him here today. But before he begins explaining these new findings and why they are important to autism and neurodevelopmental disorders, I want you to picture this. The brain is pretty much in the most simplistic form, a group of multiple traffic intersections all stuck together. If you had billions of traffic intersections and the brain cells are roads, that's kind of a sim oversimplistic version of the brain. It'll have to do for now. So imagine that there are no stoplights or yellow lights in these traffic intersections. There would be no organization. There would be traffic accidents. And in the brain, there would be uncontrollable amounts of information going all over the place. So in addition to communicating go, the brain also has a mechanism to communicate slow down and stop. One of these are called interneurons. And in fact, there is a lot of evidence to show that interneurons are affected in ASD. They are neurons that go between the go neurons to tell neurons to slow down or stop. They're controlled by an inhibitory chemical called GABA. So in autism and neurodevelopmental disorders, it appears that either there are not enough of them, they go to the wrong places, or they may be shaped differently. So what happens? Many clinicians think that the abnormal development of these interneurons contributes to things like sensory challenges or stereotypes behaviors. So if there are abnormalities in their interneurons, where do they come from? Maybe it comes from genetics, which very early in development, like when the first few brain cells are formed, control and direct these interneurons to go to the right place. Specifically in a place of the brain called the cortex. The cortex is the most outermost layer and it's responsible for memory, thinking, learning, and problem solving. Of course, these are important for not just autism, but for any higher order processing. And it's important that everything during this early stage of brain development goes just right when forming the brain. And if you want to track the origins of these brain connections and how it is formed, one way which Dr. Pasca has pioneered is to put these cells crassly put in a dish so that scientists can watch and track these interneurons where they go and how they integrate with other neurons in the brain. So he's used this technology, which he's going to describe, not me, 
to identify how the brain develops and how autism-related genes influence the process of development, to explain what goes awry if these genes are not expressed at the right time and in the right way. So thank you, Dr. Pasca, for joining us. I'm gonna turn it over to you and first ask you if you can explain a little bit more about what an assembloid is and what an organoid is, because those are two terms that are used quite frequently in this paper and in your research in general. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad uh, to have this conversation today, share some of the work that we do and also some of the plans that we have like moving uh, forward. And you know, one of the challenges that we face, obviously, in psychiatry is that it, unlike in any other branch of medicine, we can't really access the human brain. And by access, I really mean at the molecular and cellular level in a way that would allow us to probe and manipulate cells. And we've seen that when we actually access the organ of interest in medicine, uh, we can actually use the power of molecular biology and ultimately uncover mechanisms of disease and find drugs. And the classic example is what happened in oncology in the past 30, 40 years, where we've gone from having a very poor understanding of what cancer is, uh, other than, oh, cells are proliferating uncontrollably, to actually identifying very specific pathways and genes behind them and drugs that can cure many forms of cancer today. And so you can envision that at one point, you know, something like that will be possible uh, for psychiatry as well and for autism. Uh, in particular. The challenge is that the human brain as it develops is essentially inaccessible uh, for us to uh, study. And so that's where stem cell technologies come in play. And in the last you know, 15 to 20 years, we've seen remarkable advances because now we can take skin cells from any individual, bring them to the lab and push those cells literally back in time uh, to become stem cells or pluripotent stem cells. And pluripotent stem cells have this remarkable ability of turning into any other cell types if they're instructed appropriately. So what we do is we take the stem cells and then we literally provide a soup of small molecules or growth factors that tell those cells to become neurons. And we've successfully done this um, you know, for the past 15 years or so uh, the challenge has been that most of the neurons that we were making in the beginning were essentially at the bottom of a dish, you know, on a flat surface. So the cells, the neurons will not be able to interact with each other. They would not mature very far. And in fact, you wouldn't be able to keep them alive in a dish for more than, you know, 10 weeks or so, which obviously in the context of human brain development that takes months and years uh, was just touching early stages of human brain development. So an alternative to this um, is to actually keep the cells in three-dimensional cultures. So to, uh, you know, so to speak, uh, give them a, a third degree of freedom. And so rather than keeping them at the bottom of a dish, now we aggregate them as spherical clusters of cells uh, and let them be, let them float in the cell culture media for very long periods of time. And we discovered you know, now you know, more than 10 years ago, that if you just aggregate pluripotent stem cells and you move them into um, a cell culture dish uh, that is coated in such a way so that the cells cannot stick to the surface, then they'll stay as 3D aggregates and become what is now collectively known as an organoid, 
because it's like organ-like. Of course, it's an oversimplification, uh, and it's certainly not a small brain in miniature, but rather it's a portion uh, of a region of the brain with some of the cell types that are present there. But this organoid is also now known as neural organoids, uh, are quite remarkable in many ways. Uh, they uh, turn out that they'll recapitulate human or the, the specific aspects of human brain development of a region uh, you know, quite accurately. They'll make the cell types that they're supposed to make in a certain way. Cells will even organize themselves spatially. Um, and so there are a lot of experiments that you can do. And we've maintained very long-term cultures. We can, you know, we've maintained the longest cultures that have been reported to date, going beyond 800, 900 days in a dish. And we've discovered that they track time really, really well. The challenge was that you know we could make many brain regions, but we could never really look at the uh, at, at the interactions between them. And I think you know going back to the metaphor that you were using you know earlier in your introduction, you know. You know, we have to find ways for, uh, uh, you know, these highways to communicate with each other. Uh, and we were making these brain regions in a dish, but we were not giving them the opportunity to interact in a way. And there's a lot of evidence that, you know, some of this, uh, you know, some of the disorders arise from faulty, you know, communications between brain regions. So what we did about six years or seven years ago, we came up with a very simple approach where we would combine or integrate several of these organoids, two or three, um, to derive what we now uh, call an assembloid. And it's a little bit more than just like putting them together because it turns out uh, there is a lot of integration, functional integrations. The cells will recognize each other. So if you put two regions of the brain where um, there are cells in one brain region that migrates onto the other side, that literally cells will like point towards that brain regions and start migrating. Or if there are uh, cells projecting from one region to the other, they'll project like long axons and connect with the other cells. And so for instance, you know, in a paper we had a few years ago, we put a cortex, a spinal cord, uh, and a human muscle together. And although we don't really know exactly how the cells are connecting with each other, we discover that cortical neurons will connect with motor neurons and motor neurons will connect with muscle and trigger muscle contraction uh, in a dish. And I, I think this there is remarkable power uh, behind the self-organizing properties uh, of the cells because they come with instructions about assembling the circuits uh, uh, once you make the cell types. And so coming back to, uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, um, you know, autism and, and to some extent, you know, ex, uh, glutamatergic and GABAergic neurons, uh, there's been, as you pointed out, evidence for a while that there may be abnormalities in the excitation to inhibition balance in the cortex. And actually this hypothesis was put forward exactly 20 years ago, uh, primarily anchored in the fact that, you know, there's very often uh, seizures or epilepsy associated with autism and certainly there are other imbalances. So uh, the, this model was put forward that perhaps subtle imbalances between excitation and inhibition in cortex may lead to autism. And uh, the, the, the challenge, though, is that we now have hundreds of genes that have been identified with autism. Right? I mean, we knew for a long time that there is a significant heritable component to autism. Uh, but uh, now that we have 
hundreds, little, and there may be, you know, close to a thousand genes that could impair human brain development. The challenge that we're facing now is how are we going to identify what process in human brain development do they actually impact or do they interfere with? And I think that's where like our study comes. So you mentioned genetics and we know that there is a strong genetic component to autism. So how do you look at genetics in these model systems? So how is it that you go about, do you just assay all the genes? Do you manipulate the gene expression? How do you go about looking at the genetic influences of, uh, of these processes? So actually what we did in the study is we build a new platform that integrates on one hand the assembly approach that we've uh, that where we've reported several years ago and CRISPR technologies, CRISPR screens. So this um, uh, this ability to actually use molecular scissors and cut parts of the DNA. And uh, in the screen, you can actually, you know, you can cut one gene at a time, but an alternative is that actually is you can cut a lot of genes at the same time in different cells. So rather than doing, you know, we, we, we focused on about, you know, more than 400 genes, rather than doing 400 different experiments, taking a stem cell and cutting each gene out, what we did is we, you know, we uh, gave instructions in a large group of cells for all of these 400 genes to be cut in individual cells, not in the same cell. And then we ran the experiments together uh, to see which of those knockouts, which of the cells that have lost a gene associated with autism was impaired in a certain process. It was almost like a race uh, because once we've uh, made the cells, we put them together and we've told them, you know, migrate uh, and, and let's see who is making it on the other side, on the finish line and who's not making it is probably interfering with that process. And that's how this uh, process essentially went about. We took a very large group of genes of neurodevelopmental disorders, which includes autism genes, but it also includes genes associated with intellectual disability, with epilepsy. Um, we took a very large group of, of these genes, uh, and then using this molecular scissors, uh, we uh, gave instructions to cut each of these genes in pluripotent stem cells. Then we took those pluripotent stem cells and made organoids and assembloids and then ask the question, you know, which of these genes are interfering with the process? In this case, the process of migration of these GABAergic cells towards the cortex. And you can look at it as a way of like mapping. You know, here's, you know, you know, when you study genetic forms of autism, you can approach it from two angles. You can take, here's a gene associated with the disease. Let's knock it out. Let's see everything that it does. You know, does it interfere with like the proliferation of cells, with the formation of synapses and so on and so forth? The approach that we're introducing now is exactly from the other angle. It's like we're agnostic about the genes or like which gene we're studying. We have the list, but we're agnostic about like what they may be doing. We pick the process in human brain development. And I would say, here's a process in human brain development, the migration of this GABAergic cells towards the cortex, which we know may be important for autism, may not be present in all patients with autism. But let's see how many of those genes that we know are associated with the disease interfere with this process. Almost like creating a, a tiny biological uh, subgroup 
uh, of these genes. And you can now imagine this is the first step. I, I look at the screen as being the first step because uh, there are other processes uh, in human brain development that are essential. Formation of synapses, you know, neuroimmune interaction. And you can imagine taking the same group of 400 plus genes and now mapping them onto each of these processes and you know, identifying biological subgroups uh, that, that hopefully will help us understand better the biology, but maybe at one point help us design uh, therapeutic approaches. And you mentioned uh, biological subgroups, which is really, really, really important because even the features of autism, you don't see all of them the same in each individual, but if you do, it can be really problematic. So we're talking about interneurons and GABA. So you mentioned seizures. That's a huge issue. Um, we're talking about interneurons, which regulate cognitive processes in the cortex, intellectual disability. That's really important. And even language function. So these are basic human, you know, human features that are disrupted in neurodevelopmental disorders that need a therapeutic approach. Um, so how did you do this? We taught, we're talking specifically about interneurons. How did you match this to interneurons? How did you make sure that you were tracking the interneurons? So to do this, that's a very good question. So to do this, we've actually also genetically modified the stem cell lines so that every time a stem cell will turn into one of this interneuron or GABAergic cell or, you know, these neurons have like many names. It's sometimes a little bit confusing. Uh, you know, but they're essentially called interneurons or cortical interneurons, but because they express GABA, uh, they're also called GABAergic. And because GABA is generally an inhibitor neurotransmitter, they're also called the inhibitor neurons. So I'll use the term a little bit like, okay. uh, you know, interchangeably. But, um, you know, essentially what we've done is we've genetically modified the cell lines so that every single time a stem cell will turn into one of these interneurons, will we'll turn green. And that was like a very important uh, first step. And essentially we ran two screens. On one hand, we just said, let's see how many of these genes or which of these genes interfere with, with literally making some of the cells because maybe they're not making them, right? So think about like now there's the excitation inhibition balance. Uh, how do you disturb that? Well, you may have not enough uh, neurons arriving into the cortex. And that could be either because the cells were never born or because they were born, but they can move and arrive into the cortex appropriately. So essentially we tested both of these models. First of all, but making just organoids that have, uh, that make this interneurons and uh, sorting out, so pulling out all the green cells and see which of the genes were uh, represented or not represented there. And that allowed us to identify a small pool of genes that we think interfere with the generation of those uh, cell types. Um, and, and some of them were expected. So some of them we knew already from previous studies that they would interfere with that. So that was like sort of like a sanity check for us. And then we ran a second screen, which was much more complicated. It took much longer. And so Shanling Meng, who's a postdoc in the lab, ran this very large scale screen where now she actually fused those with the cortex, made an assembloid, and allowed the cells to migrate, then cut them in half, uh, literally manually, and then sort out the cells onto the other side to see who has actually made it. You know, what genes have actually made it or have not made it. Um, and initially when we were planning this experiment, which was, you know, a little bit scary at that time, because when we were doing some power calculations to make sure 
that we have enough power to even detect this. I mean, you, you, you start doing calculations. You have to have enough cells. You have to infect them with the virus. They have to migrate. They have to dissociate. You lose some cells there. You lose some cells there. And then we realize that we're probably going to need at least 800 individual assembloids to be able to test for 100 plus genes. And so to make sure that we succeed, Shanling actually made a thousand. Um, just to make sure that, you know, we're not going to fail after, you know, growing them for literally years. And then and, uh, we, you know, cut them literally one by one and pull out the cells from the other. And that, in the end, collectively, these two screens uh, indicated that about 10%, about 40 genes out of this 400 that we tested were interfering with one or another process of interneuron, either generation or migration. Um, and, and, you know, of course, and there are like a lot of surprises, like, you know, you know, scientifically, I mean, like some of the genes that were not, you know, uh, expected to be there. And I think that's the beauty of science, because now you can discover new things and not just like new things about disease, but even, uh, you know, new things about, uh, uh, you know, the cell biology of the developing human brain. So as an aside, without this CRISPR technology, how long would this have taken if you hadn't had this technology? Because oh. this technology is relatively new. I mean, not like yesterday new, but I oh. mean, this would have taken years and years. Yeah. I mean, just to give you an example, when, you know, when I was a, when I was a postdoc, which was not that long time ago, but when I was a postdoc and we were using stem cells and we would want to knock out like a gene we would use like at that time, like talents or other approaches. I mean, it would literally take you a year, a year and a half to knock out one gene, mm -hmm. you know? And, and maybe let's say if you were like really brave, you would do two or three in parallel. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we've come such a long, I mean, you know, if, if I could travel back in time and I would tell myself, you know, in 10 years, you'll be able to knock out like 400 genes at the same time. And look, I mean, I would say that it's just like not sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's impossible. And yet I think that's the, I think, again, that's the beauty of science uh, that, you know, we discover new systems that make things possible uh, that we did not even dream about like before. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like a hopeful part of, of all of this, right, is that these technologies that are, are being constantly built, including the technology and the system that you built in this study, helps further the science even make it even faster and make the discoveries even more possible. So that's just an aside. But um, so there were some genes that you mentioned in the paper, genes that came out in the paper that um, were particularly of interest when it came to this um, yeah. idea around interneuron development and connection. So the first two were SMAZ4 and CSDE1. Now, why were these two genes specifically important? Yeah. So, I mean, these genes that we, you know, we, we found a list of genes. And so I, I think that's, you know, article is to some extent also kind of like a resource for the community where others can now follow up on what these genes are actually doing and how they're interfering with the process. And, and these two are, and I think this illustrates uh, that there are multiple ways to interfere with the process. One of them is an RNA binding protein. The other one is a cell signaling protein, you know, part of the uh, the transforming growth factor uh, beta like pathway. So very different pathways in a cell converging on a process, in this case, the generation of cell types. Uh, 
one that really caught our attention. And I remember I was like looking at that gene and thinking like, what is this even doing on this list? Was this gene called uh, LNPK, which stands for Luna Park. Um, and, you know, it was like interesting, like, you know, Luna Park sometimes, you know, in Europe is referring to, uh, refers to an amusement park. <laughs> so it's a really, you know, a beautiful name for a gene that causes actually a terrible disease. Uh, patients that lose Luna Park have uh, a severe epileptic encephalopathy. So they have many, many seizures uh, a day. And obviously the cause is completely unknown. There are not that many patients, uh, you know, they're, you know, maybe five or six really described. Uh, but what Luna Park does is Luna Park is part of an essential organelle in the cell called the endoplasmic reticulum or the ER. And the ER is an organelle that sits around the nucleus of a cell and is present in every single cell. And it's important for processing uh, both proteins as well as lipids in a cell. So, um, and so it, it's really kind of like an important uh, part of the cellular machinery for processing cells. But, you know, it was a little bit mysterious because what does the endoplasmic reticulum have to do with the cell migrating? Because <laughs> literally the cells are migrating. They jump, actually. They don't crawl on the surface, but they literally jump. They point out towards the cortex. They wait for about like, you know, three hours or so. And then they jump 40 microns. And then they wait another three hours and then do another jump until they reach the cortex. So what does the endoplasmic reticulum have to do with this? So to ask that question, we actually in control cells, they're not mutants in any way, they don't have any mutations. We just literally started watching the endoplasmic reticulum. What does it actually do when the cells are migrating? And we observed something like quite fascinating. Um, you know, Shanling noticed that the entire endoplasmic reticulum moves in front of the nucleus before the cells un undergoes that jump. You know, why does it do it? We still don't fully understand. You know, it may be part of the machinery, the cytoskeleton machinery of the cell. You know, the ER is also an important source of calcium. It may be important for that migration. We don't know. But what is, you know, important to notice is that we've discovered that the uh, ER is moving in front. And, uh, you know, there's not that much known about the ER in the cell migration, although there were suggestions, you know, in the 90s that DR may be important for this process. And there is a key paper actually for uh, Mary Beth uh, Hatton at like Rockefeller uh, that, that, that indicates that DR may be important for cell migration. And now we can literally see that it is important. And if you now knock out Luna part from the cells, the endoplasmic reticulum fails to make that movement in front of the nucleus. And we think that that impairs the migration of the cells. And I think this illustrates that that machinery uh, of the ER, this movement is important. And in this case, this gene associated with autism and epilepsy causes a uh, you know, severe impairment in the movement of the cells. And we think that because the cells are not arriving at the right time or in the right place uh, in the cortex, uh, then there's going to be too much excitation in the cortex and that may lead to epilepsy. Wow. Now that you know its involvement in this, what are the next steps? Like, what do you do now? Yeah, well, I think just understanding, you know, what this does, I think it's, it's so important, right? Because when 
you know, when you think about like autism, it's it's, it's been very, very difficult to point out, you know, processes in brain development that are really affected by this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, think about it. If you, uh, if you go on the street and you ask people, you know, random people, you know, what causes cancer? You know, you'll get a very good answer. Majority of the people will tell you on the street that cancer is caused by uncontrollable growth or proliferation of cells. People will know that. Now, don't go on the street, but but go to an autism conference, <laughs> you know, and ask autism researchers, you know, what is the cellular process or what do you think is the main cellular process that, you know, is related to autism? You'll ask 100 people, you'll get 100 answers. Mm -hmm. And that's due to multiple factors. First of all, because autism is so much more heterogeneous because autism is not one single disease, but rather a group of disorders. Uh, but it's also because the brain is very complex and it has many, many parts. They're talking to each other and building these complicated circuits literally over decades uh, in humans. And so there are many ways in which you can interfere with that process. And I think just being able now to pinpoint towards some of these processes and link some of the genes to those, I think it's such an important uh, point, even in terms of understanding. And, you know, what we're trying to do now beyond like just trying to understand exactly what Luna Park does here and whether there are like any ways in which we can restore that faulty migration. I think the challenge will be uh, for us and I guess for many in the field, like well, hopefully the next uh, few years will be to now uh, map this list of genes on other cellular processes in human brain development because we can do it. Hundreds of genes on one process. You know, let's try to identify all the genes that interfere with like the proliferation of cells or all the genes that interfere with uh, microglia dysfunction, you know, because there could be a subset of, uh, you know, forms of autism that are related actually to microglial dysfunction or to other uh, neuroimmune uh, dysfunction. Uh, so I think, I think the, uh, it's an exciting time for, you know, for, for studying the biology, because on one hand, we have uh, this incredible advances in the genetics of autism. You know, we have this list of genes. And on the other hand, we're starting to have some of the tools to probe the role of these genes. And I think our uh, goal will be over the next, you know, decade or so, will be to merge these technologies and start understanding them. And at one point, like even try to understand what is the role of environmental factors. There are many, many environmental factors, drug exposures, uh, you know, inflammation during uh, uh, during pregnancy that may also interfere with these processes and may do it in convergent way with genes uh, or in orthogonal ways, you know, who knows? Yeah, and I think the podcast listeners have heard me use the terms that you just said, proliferation, migration, synaptogenesis. And so I may in the past have have kind of convoluted all of them as being these processes that are involved, but in fact, they're very different. So the idea of a cell going from one place to another is a different process than a cell making those synaptic connections with other cells in the brain. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I hope that I haven't oversimplified in the past all of the different processes that are involved in developing what is really com the most complex system in the entire world, which is the human brain. So um, there's definitely more work to be done. So is there anything else that you wanted to share about this paper or your work 
Um, anything else that I didn't ask that you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I hope I'm conveying my enthusiasm for the, you, you know, for what a great time it is to do neuroscience and, and neuroscience of some of this psychiatric disorders. I think, you know, psychiatry has certainly been, uh, you know, primarily classifying and describing these disorders uh, behaviorally. But I think we're on a cusp of getting a biological understanding of this. And I very much hope that many more students and trainees will see, you know, what a great time this is to do science uh, and, you know, join this effort really at this point uh, of, of trying to demystify essentially these processes, because that's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to demystify these stages of human brain development and how they're going awry. And, you know, hopefully in, you know, trying to understand something about like what uh, makes us human uh, to a large extent. So, um, you know, I, I think beyond just like the mission that we have to try to understand these conditions, uh, I, I think it's it's just an exciting time to do science. It, and this is a good time to remind listeners that the Autism Science Foundation has a pre and postdoctoral fellowship mechanism that um, you can go to the website. We definitely would love to see... A, maybe not this, it's been done, but um, something along these lines, you know, this is, as Dr. Pasca said, this is a really exciting time. I mean, just a few years ago, the CRISPR technology didn't really exist and you had to spend years and years and years going through the 400 genes where now you can look at them all at once um, or you can look at them in different cells and then put that that data all together. Thank you so much for joining us. And I will put a link to the study in the podcast summary. And I really look forward to talking to you again after you publish your next finding around these, this particular technology.